Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. It's nice to be with you again this evening to be able to share something from God's word. We're going to turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Amen. What an absolutely marvellous passage. It's the third time I've read it to you. And I hope that maybe in a few weeks' time I'm going to get the opportunity to read it to you again. And it begins by telling us that we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul has given us an absolutely shocking assessment of the very nature of all of humanity. Men and women in every age, in every location, people of all races and all professed creeds, says Paul, are all polluted with sin. We saw this in our last look at this passage. And we noticed that it was a a dreadful condition. It was an awful place to be. These Ephesians Before they were converted to Christ, they were, as we are, very deep down in the darkest valley of hopelessness and misery. And then before we finished last time, we came to verse 4, which begins, But God. But God. You see, there is the word, but. When I was a wee boy, we used to, a teenager perhaps, we used to have great fun with a certain preacher who came to our church on a regular basis. And he would always get up and he'd say, now there's a little word in this verse. And this little word is the word. And he would give you a whole sermon on this little word. And we used to, make fun of him when we were kids. 
And somebody would say, ah, you know, there's a little word in this verse. It's the word and. And this word occurs 455,000. And we would say this man preaches on one wee word. Well, this word but, which appears here, but God, it may be only a three-letter word, but it is hugely significant. It is highly important because in that little word, but, but God is the biggest turnaround of humanity in the Bible. It is an unexpected twist because we have just learned that in time past, we were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. We were actually, even when we didn't know it, obedient to Satan. And we were disobedient to God, for that's the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And we're all the same. We all have our conversation in times past. Our lifestyle was in accordance with the ways of this world, in accordance with the ways that this world thinks, the lusts of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And because we were so far sunk in our sin and our depravity, we were by nature, not just by birth, but by conception, the children of wrath. We were the inheritors of the rightful anger of God against sin. We are miserable wretched sinners. We deserve nothing but hell fire for all of eternity. But God. There's many as a story has a twist. I like listening to audiobooks online and very often for relaxation. Uh, I used to read novels, but now I find it easier just to listen to an audiobook. Not because I'm disinclined to read, but because I can listen in the car. It's much better than the radio, isn't it? So I listen to a novel, and isn't it sometimes interesting? It makes a novel more interesting when it comes to a part where you've almost worked out who the culprit is. And the great detective is on his trail, and you know that he's going to get caught... And, and the, the poor maiden who's been kidnapped for ransom is going to be set free and all's going to be well. And then there's a twist. And you find out that the villain is not the person you thought it was. It's actually the policeman or something similar to that. Makes the story interesting. Makes you wonder. Makes you think. You see, this but God... It makes you wonder. It makes you think. It makes the Christian believer think the purpose of Paul putting these two little words in this this passage is that we should stand back in amazement at what the Lord Jesus has done for us. He has told us about our sinfulness and he wants us to be filled with praise that God should ever love a sinner like me. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preaching on this passage, said that every Christian needs to have had this 
but God somewhere in their experience. A moment when you realize that you're lost. A moment when you realize that you're helpless and you're hopeless and you're under the condemnation of God, the rightful condemnation for your sin. And you realize that there's a but God moment that Christ has died for sinners just like you on the cross. And you cast yourself upon the mercy of God. Paul himself knew that very experience, didn't he? In Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, he writes, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Very same thing. That's the very moment, I think, that John Wesley, or was it Charles? I can't remember. One of those Wesleys was thinking of when he wrote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. And shone your glorious gospel ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was new. I rose and went forth and followed you. But God brings hope into our hopelessness, doesn't it? It brings light into our darkness. It brings life out of our death. Martin Lloyd-Jones even thinks that if you haven't experienced this but God moment, this moment of realization that you're a sinner and loathing of your sinful nature and an amazement that despite your utter sinfulness, God has stepped in to rescue you. Lloyd-Jones says, if you don't know that, you're not a Christian. You can't consider yourself to have been saved by grace. This little word, but, should cause us to stand and wonder at what the Lord has done for us. And this little word, but, should demonstrate to us the sovereignty of God. It is the Lord who saves us and not us. And despite our rebellion and despite the distress that it brings to our Creator, He has stepped in. He has done something about it. He has intervened for us. He has rescued us from this state of sinful, poisonous foulness. He has sent his own spotless son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. Think about that. Think about how Paul describes us in verse 2 and verse 3. And think how at Calvary all of my sinful pollution, all of the filth of my mind, all of the wrongfulness of my actions, all of my sin, and yours too, was placed upon Christ. God's spotless, sinless Son, and he bore my sin. And bearing my sin on the cross, God poured out the wrath that was due to us upon his own Son. 
Remember verse 3. We are by nature the children of wrath. God has taken that wrath that we rightly deserve. And he has poured it out upon his own son. So that he took my punishment. He took my eternal hell upon himself. And so in Christ, God's wrath is satisfied. And I am set free. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, Paul says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the introduction. So now I'm going to come to the substance. Why did he do it? Why did God, looking on a sinful wretch like you and me, why did he come to our rescue? I've got three reasons from the text. The first reason is because God's mercy is very rich. And the second reason is that God's love is very great. And the third reason is that God's kindness is immeasurable. So let's look at them. So we see the first one of these in verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy very reason that Paul gives, the first reason why a holy God would want to rescue sinners is that he is a merciful God. And it was in that great act of mercy that he saved us. Now let's remember that God's mercy can't be earned. We don't deserve mercy. We deserve justice. We deserve to be punished. We deserve to be under the wrath of God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 tells us not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Mercy is something that we get from God with absolutely no contribution or merit on our part. There's a well-known illustration It's just out of a book of illustrations, it's not original, that a mother once approached the Emperor Napoleon and she was seeking a pardon for her son. The Emperor said that the young man, the boy, had committed an offence, a grievous offence, and he'd committed that offence twice. And the penalty for that offence was the death penalty. Justice demanded that he should die. He deserves to die. He deserves justice. The mother said, I'm not asking for justice. I'm asking for mercy. I'm pleading for mercy. Napoleon said, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. He's a criminal. He's an offender. He deserves to die. The woman said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. 
So the emperor said, in that case, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. Now, we don't deserve God's mercy. We don't deserve God's intervention. We're sinners. We deserve to be punished. Mercy cannot be earned. And yet God's mercy is vast. Paul talks here about its richness. It is abundant mercy. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively hope. And this evening, most importantly, I want you to know that God's mercy is unending. He's just as merciful to us today as he was to the believers in Ephesus, as he was to the Apostle Paul, who was the chief of sinners. He's just as merciful today. Today, if you cast yourself upon the mercy of God, today if you understand that you are a sinner by by nature, a sinner by practice, that you are a child of God's wrath, that you are going to be cast into hell for all of eternity, to be punished for your sins, and so that justice would be satisfied, so that you would get what you deserve. If you understand that, then you can come to Christ Cast yourself upon the mercy of God, like the man who was in the temple. In the story that Jesus told the parable about the two men that went up to worship, and one of them stood at the front and said, God, I thank you that I am not like him down there, that I am not like that man, a sinner. And at the back, The other man stood and he beat his breast in anguish and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, which one of those two do you think went away justified? Come as a sinner to Jesus. He's promised that he will never turn you away. For whosoever comes to him, whosoever believeth in him, shall have eternal life. God's mercy, even to this day, is very rich. And God's love is very great. And Paul goes on to talk about that in verse 4. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us. Isn't he using superlatives? The richness of God's mercy, the greatness of his love. The word simply means his pity for us, his compassion. One of the commentators that I read in this passage stresses that while as a sinner we have broken God's law, we certainly have, that it goes much deeper than this. He contends that God, because God's nature is not just to be, to be a God of justice and holiness, these things are true, but that he is also a God of love. And because we sin against his law, we sin against his love. 
And such crimes cannot be forgiven without that love being exercised. There's a here's an illustration that's maybe not just perfect, but an illustration of a driver who was da- driving dangerously and speeding and he goes up the pavement and he kills a little child and the police are very quickly on the scene and the driver is arrested and charged and sent to prison and his punishment is swift and his sentence is long and that sentence will be hard on him for his fellow prisoners will have no time or no patience with a child killer and yet for all of that none of that punishment could bring him forgiveness from grieving parents who have lost a child no matter how hard he tried forgiveness of that crime could never be earned the only way he could be forgiven would be from an act of loving mercy on the part of the parents and God's love and his mercy are intermingled. Paul puts them together. God who is rich in mercy for his great love and it's applied wherewith he loved us. And when we speak of love in this context, God's love, We're not talking about the kind of mushy, sentimental love that you see on the television or that you sing about in popular ballads. The love that comes and goes when you fall in love and you fall out of love. and That's not the kind of love. God's love, his steadfast love, never changes. It never ceases. And God's love is God in action. It is love that works. How can we estimate the greatness, the vastness of the love of God? It is love that is measured by how much it cost him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And it's love that's measured by how little we deserve it. Think how deep his love must be for me and for you to forgive those awful sins. And it is love that is measured by the fact that in our sinful estate we didn't even want it. We spurned his love. We take everything that he has created for us and given to us and we take them for granted. And the only reason that we as believers love him is because he first loved us. It is love that is measured by the amazing benefits that are bestowed upon us as a result of it. We're rescued from eternal condemnation. We're promised a place in heaven We're given fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. What unsurpassing love this is. 1 John 3 and verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. We should be called the sons of God. 
Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God's love is great love. The greatness and the, the, the vastness of the love of God is measured by how much it costs and how little we deserve it, and by the benefits that accrue to us from it, from the fact that we didn't even want it at that time, and measured by his willingness to bestow it upon us. God's love is freely given. John chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus said, No man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. God in Christ, loving us so much that he willingly went to the cross for me. Lastly, God's kindness is immeasurable. Good verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Paul here links the kindness of God with his grace. That unmerited favor that he bestows upon us. And in both cases, he uses again superlatives. He speaks of the exceedingly rich grace of God and his kindness and the thought of our divine rescue from our sin fills him with praise and he's using up his vocabulary in this inspired attempt to describe God's kindness towards him. He's done it before. He did it in Ephesians 1 and verse 7 where he says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Every time he thinks about how the Lord has saved us, he uses the most superlative words. And we've been able to make some assessment of God's mercy and get some appreciation of the greatness of God's love. But when it comes to measuring the kindness of God to sinners... Paul has to admit that we will only fully understand just how kind he has been to us when we meet him face to face. And God will show us just how great and how amazing his grace and kindness are. So he says in verse 7, that this will happen in the ages to come. He will show us the exceeding riches of his grace. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, Paul puts it like this, as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. So in his mercy and in his grace 
and in his kindness, God has intervened and rescued us from our polluted sinfulness. Why? Do you know, like a wee boy or a wee girl whose daddy has just stood and explained something. Do you ever see this? They'll ask daddy a question. And daddy will explain and explain and explain all about the, and give them the answer to their problem. And the wee boy or the wee girl will stand and listen to every word their daddy says. And they'll say, but why, daddy? Why? Why did he love me? Why did he use up his mercy and his love and kindness? God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to have mercy upon a sinner like me. He didn't have to love me. He didn't have to be kind to me. He could have destroyed you and me for our sin, but he didn't. He did it for his glory. He did it for his own pleasure. Romans 9 and 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Why did God save us? Because his mercy is very rich. Because his love is very great. Because his kindness is immeasurable. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.